Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. I've got a question for you this morning. Have you ever genuinely wanted to do something, but for one reason or another not quite got round to it? Sometimes we forget, don't we? Sometimes we run out of time. Sometimes we really want to do it, but we, we lack the confidence to do it. Other times we, um, how do you say, we get a better offer. It happens. Uh, and last week, we looked at the five offerings that the Israelites made that the first six chapters of Leviticus gave them. Remember that? Dan took us through, he talked about the five offerings that are in the first six chapters of Leviticus that shaped for the Israelites a generous heart and a generous lifestyle. They taught the nation of Israel how to be generous. They didn't just teach them, they gave them the practice for being generous. Yeah, see the difference? It's not just you should be generous, it's here's how to be generous. And in nature... This makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I stole it from somewhere. When you get a grapevine, did you know this? If if it's got nothing to grow up, it just stays on the floor. It doesn't really grow a great deal. The the growth is inhibited. The fruit rots really quickly because it can't get light or air. It's just a bit limp, a bit rubbish. It's not a very good vine. But if you put a trellis next to it and you train it up the trellis, it grows rapidly. We walk past a garden on the way to my kid's school. I have a a vine in it, and you can literally see it moving through the year as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You can see the fruit growing on it day by day. If you give it light, if you build it up something, a trellis or another plant, a a grapevine will just rock it and will grow far more effectively and be far more fruitful. The scriptures talk about Virtue in our lives as a fruit much the same as that. We can have all the good intentions in the world. We can really want to do something. But very often, if all we've got is that we want to do it and we've not got a how we're going to do it, it will end up small, inhibited, slightly moldy, a little bit disappointing. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to read a few verses from the New Testament where Paul is speaking to a church and he is building for them a trellis for their generous hearts so that they don't just want to be generous, but they are generous. Because we don't just want to be generous, we actually want to be generous. Make sense? Real. So turn with me, if you've got your Bible or a device with access to the Scriptures in, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to read a few verses together. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men that you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. 
if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. It's not one that you're going to read out in the middle of worship, is it? Paul is putting a trellis for the generosity of the church in Corinth to grow up. Now that Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system of the temple, since he's been the once for all lamb that was slain to reconcile humanity and God back together, how do we now work out our generosity if there aren't priests and pigeons to be slain and lambs to be killed and blood to sprinkle and all of that stuff that we looked at last week. If the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ have fulfilled the physical sacrifice of things in our lives, how do we train generosity in our lives? And so Paul has some instructions for the church in Corinth, which he also gave, did you notice, to the church in Galatia, which is the church that the book of Galatians is written to, if you didn't know. And he's giving them instructions for how to be generous. Now, the context is there is an enormous famine in Jerusalem and Judea. Corinth is in Greece. Everyone's Mediterranean geography feeling tip top. Corinth is in Greece. It's around the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Back round by Jerusalem, Judea, that area, they're in the middle of a famine. There is not a lot of food. Things are not going well. And the churches that Paul has planted with Greece and Asia Minor up here above the Mediterranean are giving money to go to Judea to relieve the famine. That's the context of what's going on here. Brothers and sisters in, in Christ are starving and people in other churches want to give to help them. And so Paul is giving practical instructions to help generosity about a specific circumstance grow in their lives. And there are three things he points to, which don't just stand for these one-offs when people are starving, but stand for a really helpful trellis, a structure to train us in generosity in our lives. So if you want to be generous, here's three things for you this morning that will help you to be generous. Number one, you've got to plan to be generous. There's no good just feeling generous. You've actually got to plan to be generous. And Paul says to them, each one of you at the start of every week, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. What's he saying? He's saying you've got to do it before you start spending your money. If you want to be generous, it's no use waiting to see what's left. That's what he's saying. He's saying you need to decide this first and put it to one side so that you don't spend it. You need to look at your income and decide how generous you want to be. You've got to plan to be generous. The next thing you've got to do is prepare to be generous. So you can't just say, right, this is the amount I am going to set aside to give and be generous with. You've then actually got to set it aside. And in the first century in Corinth, they didn't have Western Union, nor did they have Bax transfer or any other such electronic form of transporting money from Greece to Israel. What they did instead was they saved it up, probably like in a pot, under the mattress, maybe. And then when Paul and some other people came, they were going to collect it all together and take it. Wouldn't that be a perilous journey? You fancy walking with vast sums of money along really long roads, plagued with bandits? That's what they were going to do. And so he's saying to them, look, it's okay to say, well, this is how much I am going to set aside. 
you've then actually got to do it. Put it aside. Think about it. Week by week, people in this church are putting some money in their little pink pig. And after a period of time, there would be quite a lot of money in that money box. He sent him, save it up. It can become very um, enticing. I'll go backwards. It can become very enticing when you've got a large pot of money that you're saving up for something, but you also need to do this or want to do this. You've got to prepare. You've got to save it up. Have it there ready to give. It's no use borrowing from it. You've got to have it ready to give. We live in the age of standing orders, direct debits, electronic bank transfers, and we can take it straight out of our money and give it straight away. We don't have to save it up to send with people. But you've actually got to do the act of putting it to one side. You've got to do the act of setting up the standing order. You've got to do the act of filling in the form. You've got to prepare to be generous. And then third of all, you've actually got to give it. You can want to be generous. You can plan and say, this is how much I'm going to have. You can then put it aside or set up your standing order and still fail to give it because you've got a better offer or suddenly you needed that money or you forgot to give it. Paul saying to them, plan to be generous. Choose how much you're going to set aside for this cause, which, by the way, you asked me to give to. You wanted to be generous. Here's how to do it. Plan, now prepare, and then give. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you want to be generous, your trellis looks like this. Plan to be generous, prepare to be generous, and give generously. In the same way as many of us will have been saving up all year in a little pot ready for Christmas, Save up to be generous, is essentially what he's saying. In the same way that some of us will put money aside each month to go on holiday, in the same way, put some money aside each month to be generous with. It's very simple budgeting advice. Profound. In the same way. He is, of course, speaking to a specific situation, and it is important we notice that. This is, in a sense, going to be a one-off offering that they're taking to relieve the famine. And in these two weeks, we're at Hope, we're looking at giving and generosity. We aren't building up to a particular offering. I'm not coming to you with a basket at the end of this morning saying, now please give. You'd be pleased to know. These two weeks are much scarier than that. We're saying to you, go away and plan how you're going to be generous and prepare to be generous and then be generous. Also, these two weeks are not necessarily about giving to Hope Church. This is about cultivating a lifestyle of generosity. But I wanted to spend one or two minutes setting out our stool clearly because clarity is helpful when it comes to money. Is that okay? It is our expectation as leaders of this church that if Hope Church is your church, you will give financially to Hope Church. Clarity is good, isn't it? As you're able, based on your income, proportionally, regularly, and joyfully. If you give begrudgingly because you think Adam told you you had to, I don't want your money. There's no blessing for you and there's no blessing for me. Our desire, our expectation is that each of us for whom this is our church would regularly give proportionally from our income with a generous and joyful heart. We give from what we have, 
We don't go into debt to give. And we give freely, not under compulsion. Clarity's good, isn't it? Giving to your local church is essentially part of supplying for the work of God in the place you find yourself. If you don't believe that God is here at work amongst us in the nicest possible way, why are you here? But if God is at work amongst us, then when we give to the local church, we are supplying for the work of God. And our finances here at Hope are not just a black hole where people give and we do what we want with it and don't tell anybody. No, we're very accountable with our money. We handle our finances excellently and honorably. We do an annual update every year of how much we've received and what we've spent that money on, on a Sunday morning, so everybody who wants to can see it. We make available our unaudited income and expenditure. You can go in and you can see line by line in our budget what we thought we were going to spend and what we actually did spend. We want to be honorable with the money that we receive. A significant portion, of course, in our world goes to salaries and staff costs, including mine. Thank you. Our view of this is that when we employ people for the church, we are releasing them from the need to earn money somewhere else so that they can give more time to serve the church using their God-given gifts. Working for the church is not the pinnacle of employment. We aren't the special ones. We aren't the best ones. We aren't the ones that God loves the most. We're simply those that, as a church, we've recognized God is with them and they're called to serve in the church. Many of you are called to serve in the places that you're in. You're called to serve in your workplace. And doing that well is just as noble as serving the church well in a staff role. Some of you are called to serve your community and to give your time there. Some of you are called to serve your home life. They're all noble pursuits. Working for the church is not better than any of them. As a church, we also use the finances we receive to facilitate times like this and the things we do together. We use it to meet the needs of people in the church when they hit hard times or there are unexpected costs. And we give generously to the mission of God beyond Harrogate through organizations we're linked with like Christ Central um, and others. Giving generously to your local church is not an afterthought, nor is it a nice optional extra in the Christian life. But neither does giving money to your local church on a regular basis tick a box on some heavenly checklist that God goes, yep, they're generous, they give to church. It doesn't satisfy the need to be generous in our lives. It's simply part of a generous heart attitude and our intentional response to God. It's my two minutes. Is that clear? I'm really happy to field questions about money at any time. Please do come and talk to me or send me an email. If I don't know the answer, I will send you to someone who does. Back to the passage, shall we go? Paul is building the trellis, as we've already looked, to enable the Corinthian church to be generous, to grow and to bear fruit in their lives. He's helping them move from good intention to action. Don't we all want to move from good intention to action in our lives, in multiple areas of life? That's what's going on here. And in that act, we face significant obstacles. The Corinthians did. That's why Paul is spelling it out. And so do we. Generosity is hard to maintain sustainably in your life. It is. And so we must be intentional. Paul's trellis helps them in their day, and it also helps us in ours. And this is what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes. 
I'm not entirely sure how much time I'm going to talk about each bit, but that's what we're going to do. At Hope, we try and do what Paul is trying to do in this passage and help each of us to have a trellis to grow our generosity up because we want to be generous people. But we live in a time where the stories that we're bombarded with in our day-to-day lives and the things that we see everywhere that we go tell us a different story. And here are three different stories, three different obstacles to generosity in our lives. Number one, expressive individualism. I've talked about this an awful lot. I'm going to do it very briefly today. We live at a time when the immediate link or step from a desire to an act is seen as ideal. I felt like doing it, so I did it. Expressive individualism is essentially the call to look inside yourself because your true self is found somewhere inside and then you must express it publicly because otherwise you are not being true to yourself. We pick this up from all kinds of things that we see in our world. A quote from N.T. Wright explaining this, he says, he's talking about the worldview, the only thing that is true and authentic is that which comes unfiltered and spontaneously from deep within myself. The only thing that's true and authentic is that which comes unfiltered and spontaneously from deep within myself. This is expressive individualism. And what it does in the context of generosity is train us to feel that the most authentic way we can live is to wait until our hearts are moved and then be generous. So it works directly against the instruction to plan to be generous. If I don't feel like I want to give money in that exact moment, then it's not a real desire and I don't have to do it. It's how this trains us. To follow someone else's instructions, to pay attention to Paul's trellis, would be to make my act of generosity less real under that mindset. Because it's not mine. It makes it less valuable because someone else has sort of told me to do it. But what's true and authentic must come from inside of me. To follow someone else's instruction could be coercion or social conformity at best. And why would I do that? I'm my own individual person. Spontaneously and with strong, heartfelt feeling is the best way to give when you live your life through an expressive, individualistic mindset. And whilst we might all sit here and say, no, 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 we know, we know. We don't do that, Adam. That's the people who are younger than me however old you are, we do need to be aware of the influence of this upon us because I would suggest to us it's pretty strong. If we only do things when we feel like it, we are training selfishness and laziness into our lives. Think about it. If you've got children, you don't tend to say to them, when you feel like it, could you? Tidy your room, please. Your boss doesn't send you an email on a Monday morning and say, whatever you want to do this week, you just do that. That's fine. But in all sorts of decisions in our lives, we often make our decisions based on how we feel about doing it. A generous lifestyle will require us to plan, will decide will require us to decide how much we want to be generous with from what we receive and then to actually count the cost of doing it and do it. Secondly, 
The obstacle to preparing to be generous, I've put up as consumerism. I very nearly perfected the perfect preach today, have you noticed? They nearly all begin with the same letter. Apart from in each column, I've, I've missed one. Consumerism is the view that our value is connected to what we have. If I have that, then, then my heart will be satisfied. Then I would be validated. Then my life would be okay. If I could just get past that next threshold of salary band at work, then my life would be easier. If my savings could just hit that number, then I'd feel free to be generous. When I've just replaced this and that and the other in my house because I just, the newer things work better, then, then I can truly rest. Then I can be truly happy. I'm conscious I'm slightly caricaturing it, but somewhat familiar, isn't it? Again, we might not sign up the whole way to this, but if I had an envelope with me this morning with 1,000 pounds in cold, hard cash to give to any one of us, I would expect that no matter your household financial situation, you could within three seconds tell me what you would spend that money on. I tested it in my house. We would spend it on removing the red carpet that runs up our stairs and landing because although it's a very high quality carpet, it is block red, which means that once you've hoovered, you put the vacuum away, you go back and look at it, and it looks like a herd of elephants has run over it, having run across the Serengeti Plains. And it's somewhat demoralizing to clean and then realize it still doesn't look clean. You gave me a thousand pounds today, we do it. Do we need a new carpet? No. Would it change our life in any serious way? You might find slightly different answers. But the fact still remains. We can think about the things that we want or need. And we sometimes struggle to differentiate between the two. Giving generously requires a form of self-denial in our lives. Because it cuts hard against what shapes our view of normal. The people we live near, the people we spend our time talking to, those who shape our media input, set what we think of as normal, and they do so within a world that is consumeristic. I was talking to a friend recently, he's a bit older than me, approaching retirement age, was very successful in business, um, and then moved to work for um, a Christian organization later in life. And we were talking about generosity and giving and money. And he, he said, every day when I used to drive into the car park at work, where he was one of the managers, I oversaw a significant team, earned good money. It would strike me that I was driving in, in quite an old, lower spec car. And I would park my old lower spec car in a car park full of brand new fancy cars that were all driven by the people who I was the boss of. And every single day, it told my heart, I should get a better car. But my wife and I had chosen not to get a better car so we could give to X and Y things in our lives. They'd moved the length of the country to plant a church. And they were giving generously. And it meant they couldn't get the car that every day his heart was told he should have because he was the boss of people that were driving better cars than him. 
Maybe for you, it's not cars. Maybe it's the fact that the people you spend time with seem to go away an awful lot for weekends. They go for way more meals out than you do. I can relate. Last week, we finished, and I read some verses from the end of 1 Timothy 6, commanding us to be generous. And I just wanted to read a few verses that set the context for what I read last week. This is 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. Paul writing again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He then charges Timothy and then commands him to command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant and to put their hope in God. And I know that not many of us feel wealthy because we live in a consumeristic world. And giving generously is a form of self-denial. It means choosing to lay down what we might want. Sometimes living generously will mean laying down what we feel we need in order to invest in something far more significant, cultivating a generous heart in the image of God, and to be generous to whatever we're giving to. And friends, if we don't know the one who has the cattle on a thousand hills, if we don't know the one who has promised to provide for us as he provides for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, we will likely feel the lack of our situation keenly, whether that's absolute lack or relative lack. And when we live in that place, it hardens our hearts and it chokes generosity. Because I need that. We all fight these desires. I'm not standing here as someone who's got this sorted. One of the best principles I've been advised in my life is the moment I begin to feel like I want to pull all my giving back in and go, I need that for myself. Give some money from somewhere. Fight it. Break it at that very moment. Somewhat terrifying, but it forces us to live by faith. The Corinthians are giving to something with eternal significance. They're feeding brothers and sisters in the midst of starvation. People will die if they don't give money. More than that, they are investing in the global church to see the kingdom of God advance in their day and into the future. It's probably not pushing it to say that the reason you and I are here today stems partly from the fact that these people in this church were generous on this day. And the church throughout history has been a generous community. People who follow Jesus have lived generously for 2,000 years. Like them, we need a godly normal to define our reality. And Paul's instructions build on lots of unspoken assumptions that build this godly reality. Let me give you a few. Number one, firstly, generosity is an unquestioned virtue. Did you notice? 
He doesn't say, are you sure you want to give? He assumes that, of course, they want to give. Generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord. It is the normal Christian life. They want to be generous because their Father in heaven is generous. Generosity is an unquestioned virtue he's building on. Of course you want to be generous. Secondly, the Corinthian believers are connected to the family of God, the worldwide family of God, and are moved in heart when other believers are in need. They want to be generous so that there is no needy person amongst us. Thirdly, his practical instructions help them to withstand the illusion of riches which chokes the word of God in their lives. This is Jesus' term. He uses it to describe the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth in the parable of the soils. He says it grows up like a thorn and it chokes the word. Paul knows that life has enough worries and wealth has enough deceit to choke out the Corinthians' desire to be generous. Fourthly, it builds upon the assumption that we're only stewards of what we possess anyway. All that we are and all that we have belongs to Jesus, bought by his blood. Everything we have is his. It's from him, it's for him, and it is still his. That's what responding to the call of Jesus meant for us. If you've been around hope a little while, you've probably noticed what I'm doing, which is that I'm quoting lines from our generosity prayer that we pray together every week. Every single line in it is either allusion or direct quotation from Scripture. You've got the slide? You probably can't see this because it's a bit long. But the right-hand column is the Scriptures that came to my mind as I was trying to write down all the times it's alluded to. We're to be people of the Word, internalizing it, aware of the cross-links throughout because it tells a story. It's not just the cold words on a page, but it's the reality it forms for us, which is powerful. Take a picture of it. Check my homework. We'll send it out in the newsletter this week if you want to have a look. Every single line is either direct quotation or strong allusion from Scripture. It's a powerful thing to pray each week when we're looking to form a godly morning and not a worldly morning. However, I do recognize that 12 months ago when we started doing it, I did not introduce it well. If I look back on my time in leadership, it's one of those moments where I'm conscious. If I could go back, I'd do it differently. And there's all sorts of reasons for it, which I'm not going to go into now. But we did it very quickly, very bluntly, and without explanation. And if I could go back, I would love to take the time to go through some of this, to show us how it comes from the Scriptures, as I've just done briefly. I'd love to have taken the time to explain why doing things together really does form who we are and why creating a godly reality is so important in a world when we're bombarded by ungodly realities. I would love to have explained that it isn't the end of the road, that it was merely one step in trying to broaden how we express our faith together as a church. It will change. It was never supposed to be the destination. We're in the process of working out some other ways we can do things together that help to shape us into a godly reality rather than an ungodly reality. In the coming weeks, we will begin to take communion more regularly together in our Sunday mornings, sometimes in that slot where we currently say the generosity prayer because it's what Jesus told us to do. 
Maybe that's a good enough reason. For some people, I'm sure that my poor leadership in bringing it in caused offence and upset and pain. I'm sorry. I would like to have led into it better. Hopefully today I'm leading into it slightly better. And as we make changes moving forward, we will try and learn from our mistakes. I'm going to go back to the other table, David. The third one at the bottom there is cynicism. And I tell you what, this could do a whole preach in its own right. I'm not sure a week goes past I don't hear a story about abuse of power. I'm not sure a week goes by where I hear stories of people, even in the church, using other people's money inappropriately. There's only so much disappointment the human soul can take before the human heart gets hard. Fortunately, we know the one who softens hearts. And we know the one who's sovereign over all things, even when people do stupid and evil things. We have to be those who are able to deal with God when we're disappointed. We have to be able to separate out when people do stupid and evil things. It doesn't mean God has done something stupid or evil. Cynicism stops us giving. It does. 2010, there was an enormous scandal. Some of you remember it. Oxfam were found that many of their workers were doing stupid and evil things in Haiti. They were supposed to be helping people who'd been the victims of a natural disaster. Oxfam's income dropped 60 million pounds in the next 12 months. Now, rights and wrongs of that, I'm not here to comment on. But many people live with cynicism in their hearts about how other people, charities especially, will handle their money. It's my money. I know what can be done best with it. Why would I give it to them? Look what happens when we give money to people like that. That's called cynicism. It robs us of joy in life. It robs us of connection in life. And it robs us of the ability to be generous in life. It's absolutely right to be wise about where we give money to. To consider what do they do? Are they, do they act with integrity? Are they honorable with it? What do they use it for? If you're going to give significant amounts of money to things, you should check those questions and answers. All sorts of resources out there. When we bring people or situations you can give to in this church, we've done that due diligence more often than not. In a few weeks, we've got Compassion coming. We're talking about um, opportunity to sponsor children. In Ghana, connected with the Christ Central Church, we're going to get a video from our friend Michael Akotia, who leads that church, and churches in Ghana who set up this center with money our movement at churches gave to. You can track it all. Compassion, your money goes exactly to the child and to making sure that they're able to get an education, food, health, all that sort of stuff. Claire, when she comes, will explain it. When people come in and ask for money, we've asked those questions. It's right to ask those questions if you're going to give money to places. I've explained something of how we try and act with integrity here at Hope. You really are free to ask questions. Sometimes, of course, you will be moved to give and you can't ask to see someone's bank account or their policy for how they're going to spend donations, and that's fine. But we should be wise in how we handle our money. God has entrusted it to us to use wisely for his reality, not to be frivolous with. My friends, we want to be generous people. We want to be generous because our generosity is a demonstration of the good news of Jesus. Jesus, who laid it all down, gave up his very life in order to provide everything we could possibly need.
spiritually and physically. I'm going to finish by reading just a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, kind of like the end result of this um, story of the Corinthians giving to the people in Judea and Jerusalem who are starving. If you've got your Bible, why don't you read with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. This is Paul's second time writing to them. He has yet to come and get the money from them. But he's just reaffirming what he said. It's a good place to end this morning. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. It's a quotation from Psalm 112. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. Friends, we're called to be generous. We will not be generous unless we plan, prepare and act generously. Go and be generous. David, I haven't asked you to do this, but is the generosity prayer lined up? Let's finish by saying our generosity prayer together, then we'll we'll sing our closing song. Joe and Sandra, why don't you pick a song? Any song? Within reason. Uh, And everyone else, if you're able, why don't you stand to your feet? We pray together this prayer. It's an act we do together to help train our hearts towards a godly picture of reality and not an ungodly picture of reality. To train ourselves to be generous, to want to be generous, and to actually be generous. So, should we say these words together? Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought by the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself... And to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the illusion of riches which chokes the world, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity 
until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It's the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Amen.